Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Roadmap to Heaven here on Covenant Network. I am Adam Wright, happy to be with you on this Tuesday morning, November 22nd. It is a beautiful day outside. It's a beautiful night last night, if I do say so myself. Maybe we'll get to talk about that later, but, you know, that's quite all right. Let's pray as we do every morning in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Jesus, through the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I offer you my prayers, works, joys, and sufferings of this day for the intentions of your Sacred Heart in union with the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass throughout the world in reparation for my sins, for the intentions of all my relatives and friends, and in particular for the intentions of the Holy Father. Amen. Eternal rest grant unto them, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon them. Through the mercy of God, may the souls of the faithful departed rest in peace. Amen. We dedicate all of our thoughts, words, and actions to the greater glory of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Happy Thanksgiving Week Tuesday to you. It's a uh, it's a wonderful day here today, and we've got a great show for you this morning. Father Kirby is going to be with us uh, with a little challenge for us, as I've been saying this week on the show and in my other on-air uh, spots throughout the day here on Covenant Network, which are, I have to say are some of my favorite times, too. As much as I love the show, I also love those chances just to pop in between shows throughout the day and say hello. Um, Advent's coming. Advent's coming on Sunday. So Father Kirby has a challenge for us related to Advent. You have to stay tuned till later in the show to find out what that is. Last week, we brought you part of an interview with Father Wade Menezes that we did on purgatory and praying for our beloved dead in the month of November. We made the entire thing available on our podcast, but then you know we received some who said, hey, uh, I don't know how to get to a podcast, and I, I really enjoyed that. So we're going to bring you some more of that interview today. Uh, we have our catechist for you, the Daily Dose of Encouragement, and, of course, a whole smattering of other offerings throughout the show today, and that is what's ahead. Uh, that said, the uh, you know what comes next. It wouldn't be Roadmap to Heaven if we didn't start with the weather in our Saint of the Day. And I understand the weather is looking up, so let's go to Mike Roberts now for our weather forecast. Today is the memorial of St. Cecilia, virgin and martyr. Born in Rome during the second century, the legend of Cecilia tells us she came from a family of nobles. This was during the reign of the Roman Emperor Severus, whose hate for Christians produced many martyrs. Cecilia was engaged to a young man named Valerian, but on the day of their wedding, she informed him that she had converted to Christianity and taken a vow of chastity. Valerian's response was to convert as well, and he was secretly baptized by Pope Urban I. Shortly afterwards, Valerian's brother Tiberius also converted and was baptized. It was not long before the Roman authorities took action. The local prefect, Almachius, had the brothers arrested. However, Maximus, the arresting officer, was so moved by their faith, he converted as well. Enraged, Almachius had all three tortured severely and then beheaded. Cecilia was then arrested and condemned to die as well, but she was very popular in the community, which made Almachius concerned about a public execution. Instead, he sentenced her to death in a steam room. She was locked in the room for 24 hours, but to everyone's shock, emerged unaffected. So Almachius ordered her decapitation, but after three blows from a sword, though badly wounded, she remained alive. 
Unable to speak, Cecilia showed her continued belief in the Trinity by holding her thumb and two fingers. Finally, after suffering in great pain for three days, she died. Stefano Moderna carved a statue of the slain Cecilia with her fingers and thumb clearly extended in honor of the Trinity. That statue can be found at the central altar of the Basilica of St. Cecilia in Rome. St. Cecilia, please pray for us. I'm meteorologist Mike Roberts for Covenant Network. Have a blessed day. Saint of the Day can arrive each morning by subscribing on your favorite podcast player. Search Covenant Network to see all our podcasts. Our Lady of Perpetual Help. Oh, what consolation, what sweetness, what confidence, what emotion fill my soul when I pronounce thy sacred name or even only think of thee. I thank God for having given thee for my good so sweet, so powerful, so lovely a name. But I will not be content with merely pronouncing thy name. Let my love for thee prompt me ever to hail thee, Mother of Perpetual Help. We all have our familiar habits, and for me on Sundays that includes walking into church with the children, helping them sign themselves with the sign of the cross and the holy water from the stoops, and then genuflecting as we head into our pew. But I cannot help but glance at the board with the numbers indicating what we will sing. And sometimes that's the preoccupying question. What are we going to sing at Mass today? Going back to my days as a director of music, I used to make that distinction between church music and and then music of the church. And what do we mean by that? Well, that is why we have our next two guests with us, Mr. Nicholas Kalinowski and Mr. Stan Matheny, to talk about some of the music of the church, what the church sings. Gentlemen, it's good to have you with us on Roadmap to Heaven this morning. Thanks for having us, Adam. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. Both of you returning, I should know. You've been with us before on the program. Now, what brings us together is the Cantore Sancti Ludovici, the Singers of St. Louis, a men's scola restoring traditional liturgical prayer. So we have some terms we need to define from the outset here. So uh, quickly, let's start with that. What exactly is a scola? That's a term we don't hear too often in our modern vocabulary. Exactly. A scola, if we're taking the root word, we could get the word school in the English from scola. But in the traditional Catholic sense of the word, it comes from the Greek, which speaks about a certain leisure or rest, which might be confusing on the surface, but in the Catholic sense of leisure and rest, it is the texts which Holy Mother Church has given us to chant, to pray, and the holy sacrifice of the Mass and the Divine Office, otherwise known as the Liturgy of the Hours, in which we sanctify every part of the day with this chant, this prayer and praise of God. And that is what a scola cantorum is, is a school of men, a school of singers who are dedicated to this holy leisure, this holy contemplation, sanctifying their own souls and winning grace for their diocese and the whole church and world at large. Now, when we talk about this, you know, there are many prayers that we pray throughout the day. We talk often on the show about the daily rosary, certainly a very good prayer, a very fruitful prayer, one that Our Lady asks us to pray every way. Here's your daily reminder of that. But Stan, one of the things we also need to keep in mind is that the Church herself does have a method of prayer throughout the day that I've always referred to as the Liturgy of the Hours, but sometimes called the Divine Office as well. Actually, if you look and open the book that contains the Liturgy of the Hours, 
you will see right there on the title page that its former name and its official name is still or the divine office of the Roman Rite. So what we do in the Orator is we maintain this traditional form, and it goes back to the earliest centuries of the church at which the apostles and the early Christians gathered to pray at certain times of the day. It received more or less its current form around the time of St. Benedict, in which it was defined that we have eight hours of the day, and these are matins, lauds, prime, terse, sext, known, vespers, and compline, and this daily cycle is clearly defined by the church. It's public, it's vocal, and it's meant to be chanted with certain predefined melodies. I think back to my Latin teacher, Father Samuel, who described the divine office with an analogy saying if you've ever been camping, especially in the colder months, you're not constantly putting logs on the fire. You put a log on the fire, it burns for a period of time, then you have to put a new log on the fire. And that is precisely what the divine office is, as we think of St. Paul's exhortation, pray without ceasing, that throughout the day, we're putting another log on the fire of our prayer. Now, Nicholas, as you said, the goal of this is to bring together a group of men to sing the divine office throughout the day. And I know we're we're building up to that. We're not quite there yet. But at its core, who is this for? Because so often I think of, oh, they're having something at church. I I should go up for that if I am able to. Who are we singing for? At its core, the Schola Cantorum sings first and only for God, for the glorification of God as as an end in itself. And a good priest friend of mine once said, we can never be without maybe a trace of selfishness because this glorification of God certainly goes to our benefit and the benefit of the whole church as well. But as far as, you know, something being up at church, I've certainly thought that myself as well. But the scola will chant whether there's a thousand people in church or one person in church because the glorification of God is totally outside of any sort of human activity to conere cum angelis, as the great quote goes, is to chant with the angels. So we're really just participating in a foretaste of the heavenly praises of God. And to do that with or without a large congregation is our goal. And I think the comfort for anyone who is or is not present, some people get many fruits from being present, but the comfort of not being present is that you know these chants are being prayed for you on your behalf, whether you are there or not. There's a famous story of St. Louis and his men as they were going to crusade. They were they were almost sinking in the Mediterranean Ocean, and St. Louis basically calmed all of his soldiers down by saying, men, like, fear not, the monks are chanting matins for us back in France, which I think is just a wonderful story. And this brings up another great point that as we talk about trying to become saints and we look to the saints throughout many centuries in the 2000 year lifespan of the church, this is how many of them would have prayed, chanting the divine office at some point in their life. Is it not, Stan? Absolutely. It's the unbroken tradition from the earliest days of Christianity. And actually, much of it goes back the practice all the way to the second temple. So our divine Lord would have prayed many of these same psalms, most of these same psalms. And he was quite familiar with the prayer forms. We know that he went up to the temple, the apostles did, and this tradition carried on through the centuries in monastic form and in secular form. In fact, most parishes had some kind of chanting of the divine office right up until somewhere around the late 18th, early 19th century. It was still very commonly found. 
So, yes, it's been the framework of what we call Western civilization. It's part of the cultural foundation of Western civilization is this very structure of prayer. So all the saints would have been very familiar with it. I love going to the History Museum to see how things were in the past. But this isn't like going to the History Museum. This isn't looking at the past. This is living the liturgy of the church. And it's a beautiful thing that this tradition has been handed down to us and that we carry it on and that we might pray in the same way as our forebearers in faith, our ancestors in the faith would have prayed. And and I want to thank you both for the work you do to make that possible here in the St. Louis metropolitan area. Here's what we're going to do. We actually have a lot more to talk about on this subject of chant and the divine office and why sing or why chant. But unfortunately, due to the constraints of the show, it's a much larger conversation. So I'm going to give you a little carrot here and some homework. Tune into the Roadmap to Heaven podcast later today for an extended interview with Stan and with Nicholas. But before we go to the break here on the show, I do want to invite all of our listeners, if you would like to hear the Scola sing, there are some upcoming things to maybe mark on your calendar. Uh, Nicholas, could you tell us a little bit about when the Scola will be singing over the next month or so? Absolutely. For the season of Advent, there's a very special early morning Mass, which is quite popular for people to attend. That will be at the Oratory of Saints Gregory and Augustine, which is at St. Luke the Evangelist Parish, on December 10th at 6.30 a.m. That's a very popular special Mass. And then of course, the Christmas liturgies see the Oratory of Saints Gregory and Augustine bulletin or website for details, but we will be chanting at the three Masses for Christmas at midnight, 6.30 a.m. and 8 a.m., as well as all of the Divine Office surrounding those Masses beginning at 9.30 p.m. and then kind of sandwiched all around those masses. And then regularly we chant at the Oratory of Saints Gregory and Augustine on Sunday at 11.30 a.m. for the High Mass and Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. as well for a High Mass. And Wednesday will be followed by Compline beginning in Advent, as well as Sunday we chant Vespers at 4.30 p.m. and Terse before the High Mass, Terse beginning at 11.10 a.m. So there's basically any day you want to participate in this chanted prayer of the church, come to the Oratory of Saints Gregory and Augustine, and you could probably find something. For more information on the Cantore Sancti Ludovici, the singers of St. Louis, you can email info at scola, S-C-H-O-L-A, scolastl.org, or you can visit scolastl.org. Nicholas and Stan, I want to thank you for being with us on the radio broadcast of Roadmap to Heaven this morning. And again, if you'd like to hear more, check out the Roadmap to Heaven podcast, which we'll upload later this morning. We're going to take a break here. Stay tuned. Well, hello, podcast listeners. As we just said, we are going to continue our conversation with Stan Matheny and Nicholas Kalinowski about the beautiful tradition we have of chanting the divine office and really the music of the church, not just music at church. Stan, I'd like to start with this because before our interview, I may have stepped in a little bit of a trap there and and you caught me and I said, so when you sing the divine office and you said, no, no, Adam, you chant the divine office, obviously a distinction there. And I'd like to ask you, what is that distinction between chanting and singing? There is a distinction, Adam. The two words are actually interchangeable. I was giving you just a little bit tongue in cheek there. But the reason that we try to use the word chant as opposed to sing is that 
chant is not exactly music. The first thing, if you ever study at the Monastery of Salem, the first thing they'll remind you is that chant is not music in their strict French style because chant is a particular type of proclamation of the word. And so it's actually sung speech. Our primary objective in chant is to proclaim the word itself, the divine word. Most of the texts of the liturgy come either straight from sacred scripture or from some adaptation of sacred scripture. So our job is to proclaim the word and ultimately the word with a capital W, our divine Lord himself incarnate. So that's the mission of chanting. We proclaim the word as it's laid out by the Holy Ghost in the sacred liturgy, as opposed to singing, which can be a a much broader subject. Singing can cover a wider array of music that can also be sacred, but doesn't fall within the strict aegis of what the church outlines as its official text and its official melodies. As a musician, both of sacred music and secular music, I do think of some of those important differences. How many great pop songs have been written where they start perhaps just strumming a pattern of chords on a guitar in a time signature such as 4-4 or 3-4 and then humming a melody and saying, all right, we need some words to go with this. And a perfectly great way to write a pop song. Absolutely. Uh, But when we look at at chant, especially the propers of the Mass, the introit, the offertory, the communio, and then the divine office— It's the words that come first, and the music is really in service of the words. Well said. It serves only to enhance our proclamation of and interpretation of the word. Most of the monks of Salem, at some time or other, have written in some great depth about this as, if you want to know what the church thinks about a particular text, look to the chant because it's the church's official interpretation of what that text is about and how it plays out in our lives. And the chant helps to interpret that and to bring it alive for us at that moment. Now, at the beginning of the radio broadcast portion of this segment, one of the things we talked about was the difference of music at church or church music and then the music of the church. And that's something that I think, based on the abilities of parishes and the resources available, Holy Mother Church, in her kindness, did say, you know, here's the hierarchy of what we should do, but recognize that not every parish would be able to do that and said, so if you can't do A, do B. If you can't do B, do C. And if you can't do C, do D. But what we're talking about really here is A. First and foremost, when we hear words like entrance antiphon or introit, offertory antiphon, communio, this is the original music of the Mass. Exactly. And those are very clearly defined, both the text and the melody, and they're laid out in official books that correspond to the other texts of the Mass that we use. And so, both for the Mass and for the Divine Office, what we do is to follow the official books during the day in the traditional form. So, we chant the hours and we chant the Mass. Ultimately, at some point, we would hope to chant all the hours. We're slowly adding them. We're going to add, in addition to the ones Nicholas mentioned, we're going to also add prime before the 8 a.m. Mass at 7.20 on Sunday mornings. I have to admit, I do have some favorite hymns, such as uh, To Jesus Christ, Our Sovereign King. I never, I never tire of singing that hymn. And I think of our own Father Martin Hellriegel, who wrote the text for that hymn and, and set that to music, if I re- remember correctly. We, we sang it 
last Sunday as our recessional. We also like that hymn. But when we talk about these antiphons, this was not Father Hellriegel or, or even St. Gregory the Great no. who said, well, I'm going to sit down and write some words to be sung at Mass. Where do these texts come from that we sing? Almost all from sacred scripture. And they were slowly developed and composed over the early centuries. Some go as back early as the second century. And they're more or less fixed by around the uh, 10th century in their present form. There were some changes after that, additions as new feasts came along and some adaptations. But you have the what is called the golden age of Gregorian chant, and it basically runs from about the 7th to the 10th centuries, and it becomes more or less fixed. It's amazing in the chants of the Mass, the consistency we find, because of thousands of manuscripts, but they're remarkably consistent, surprisingly so. You wouldn't expect that, given the state of communication and the way that manuscripts were produced and replicated. So we have a, a pretty strong tradition in the, in the divine office. We have more variety, but there too, some key texts remain remarkably consistent because from monastery to monastery, the tradition was passed on. We don't have time to go into the whole history, but starting in the fourth century with Pope St. Sylvester, we began to try to form scole who in turn were supposed to pass on this tradition. And then, of course, Charlemagne took the Roman scola and imposed it on the entire Carolingian Empire. So from there, it became a dominant way of prayer in the Middle Ages. Recently, we had a program on our airwaves. They were discussing the upcoming change in liturgical year and in the ordinary form of the Mass, the change in the cycle of readings to year A. And one of the comments that was made was not only look at the readings, the, the scriptural readings are important at Mass, but to know what the Church is trying to communicate to us. You know, first of all, Mass is about the worship of God, but it also catechizes us. It's, it, it's a great both and. And the commentator said, look towards the collect, that opening prayer. Look towards the other proper prayers of the Mass, the ones that change from week to week. And these antiphons, especially for the Mass, the intro in the communio, those also, it's not just a random text. It's something that catechizes us in the context of Mass and the readings being offered that day to an extent. Very much so. And this is a soapbox of mine to speak about all the propers, not just the readings, because they do act, interact, I should say. One in, helps interpret the other, the collects in particular. I'm a great student of the collects, as well as a student of the chants. But the purpose of all those chants is to enhance the entire experience and to direct and focus our minds toward the worship of God. We don't come to get something out of the Mass as much as we we get by giving. We're there to give praise and honor to God. We should come to Mass to give something, not get something. The getting comes from the giving. God not being outdone in generosity. Absolutely. Now, uh, the other thing I think of with this is some would say, well, but I just love singing my hymns. And you mentioned that even in the, the old form of the Mass, so uh, the, the Uses Antiquor, you still sing hymns sure. and before the Mass and at the procession at the end of Mass. So this is not a mutually exclusive thing. We can no. sing an entrance processional hymn and then the introit, perhaps as even in the, the ordinary form of the Mass, the new Mass, as Father incenses the altar, we could be singing the introit. Or chanting the introit. Chanting the introit. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's there's a few times in which I'm conflicted which one is more which one is more inspiring about whether it's the whole congregation chanting the Kyrie and the Gloria with the Scola or 
everyone singing Faith of Our Fathers, very uh, full-voiced, or the Credo all together, or the Salve Regina at the end of Mass from a little six-year-old girl to a 90-year-old man. I mean, it's incredible to see how this tradition is so rooted across every generation. It just really makes me excited to be Catholic when, when you see moments like that. Nicholas, I'd love to ask you this question. We touched on this briefly in the first part of the segment, but who is this for? I mean, we, we talk about Escola, and as a former parish choir director, I would always go to parishioners and say, have you thought about joining the choir? Oh, no, no, I don't sing, especially if, I mean, I could sing the melody, but that's it. Who sings in the Escola? The cantors in our Escola are men 18 years and older who have a desire to join us in this praise of God. We aren't looking for music credentials primarily. They certainly help, and it's, it's wonderful to have talented cantors. However, the Scola is, in a lot of ways, a fraternity of men who are dedicated to doing what the Church has asked us to do. There's this wonderful quote from the document Sacrosanctum Concilium, which says, Scolae Cantorum, exactly this model, if you go back to the Latin of the document, Schools of singers, scole cantorum, must be diligently promoted. So this was from the year 1960, whenever Sacrosanctum Concilium was published. And this is going all the way back over 1,500 years of the church has said, this is the model we want you all to do. That's what I'm trying to proceed with, the men who are interested in propagating these chants. And so we have some very talented cantors who have been to music school and have those sorts of credentials. And we have dads from the parish who have joined us. So it's a very kind of diverse group, but there's an incredible union and fraternity when you are sacrificing yourself for God. And at the end of the day, if you've just completed three hours of chanting together, the the high credentials and the low credentials all end with just a, you know, a glorious kind of brotherhood of we made this, we did this thing for God. So any man over 18 who has a desire to give praise to God with us. And there's simpler ways of introducing men to a simple psalm tone in the divine office versus the complicated chants of the mass and just stepwise process where we've taken many men from step zero to very proficient chanters. I think back to my first time with the nooms or the square notes, as they're often called. And I started with piano lessons in the third grade. I was exposed to music from birth. My mother's a musician, and it's always been part of my life. But I was so intimidated because it was a whole new world of, well, wait a minute. I, this, where are the stems and the flags and the, the circles and the filled-in circles and the rests and everything I knew about music up until that point? But one of the great comforts for me, when you chant, you chant in one of the eight modes. And after a while, once you get into that mode, it's kind of like getting into an old pair of shoes that's just conformed itself to your foot and is comfortable. You, you settle into mode one or mode two, singing a few verses of the antiphon and then the verse. And all of a sudden, it just it feels like you're there. I, I don't really know how to describe it other than to say it's like putting on a comfortable shoe. You, you may not know exactly, oh, is that do? Is that Ray? Is that me? But you know where to go in a sense. If we could take a little digression, because Adam, you and I would certainly have that piano, Western music sort of background. But I would love to have Stan elaborate on his background <laughs> because he was not allowed to see a modern note until what grade? Modern notes we weren't allowed to look at until almost the sixth or seventh grade, but we didn't have any notes. We started with Ward Method, which is having a revival. Ward Method, uh, Justine Ward was a great friend of Dom Mokuru at Salem, 
and was one of the, the people responsible for the spread of the teaching of Gregorian chant in the United States. So her books for teaching, K through 8, became standards throughout most of the U.S. Well, maybe perhaps much of the U.S. Most might be an exaggeration. But I was blessed to have Ward Method from kindergarten. And so from my earliest days, we would start with the basics of chanting as opposed to singing. And we mimic bird sounds and all the other things you do in Ward Method. And it was a brilliant way to learn because I had the modes imposed in my brain long before I had key structures. So when I did come later to piano and organ and all the things that I've studied, I still retain, when I sing, I sing modally. I think modally. So what you say is very true. And when I know the mode of a piece, I, before I try to even worry about what the melody might be, I get the modal structure in my head, and the melody just falls in place. It's so intuitive. I think back to my time instructing the children and trying to teach them basic chant And uh, one of the parishioners said, what's the easiest way to get the children to sing? And I said, it's simply this. You sing the dialogue of the Mass. Because if I walked into, we joked around, we called it the, uh, I was the only adjunct K-8 through lecturer in the entire Archdiocesan (laughs) Elementary System (laughs) teaching liturgical music on Wednesday afternoons. But if I walked in after about the third week of the year and just said, or saying, good morning, students. They'd say, good morning, Mr. Wright. And they'd have it down because they knew. uh, And then Father would start Mass. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. And it's so intuitive and it's beautiful that God speaks to us through something that is really just part of our being. Modes go back to the earliest experience of music that we know about in human history. So modal is core, at the core of what how music evolved through the centuries. We are quickly uh, running out of time. We, we do have another interview coming up here on the schedule, but I want to thank Stan and Nicholas for being with us. But I want to leave one last tease here as we're coming up on the season of Advent. There is a term you may have heard, Aerocross. Or, and if you haven't heard that, you've probably sung a hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and the two are very closely related because it comes to us as we've been talking about antiphons and propers and the divine office, as we look at the proper antiphons of the divine office in the final days of Advent, we have O Sapensia, O Adonai, O Radix Jesse, O Clavis David, O Oriens, O Rex Gentium, and O Emmanuel. Stan, could you tell us a little bit about what we just said there and why this is so familiar for us? familiar because these are the antiphons sung before the Magnificat, which is the canticle of our Blessed Mother, which was pronounced by her, of course, at the visitation of her cousin Elizabeth. And we sing it every evening of the year at Vespers, in the evening hour. So these antiphons are texts, every day we have a little text, to give us a different focus for chanting the Magnificat, because the Magnificat doesn't change. But like most of sacred scripture, can take on many nuances. There are infinite amount of knowledge and wisdom to be gained from meditating on the sacred scripture. So the church proposes each day, think about this as you sing the Magnificat. Think about this idea. So the church proposes in the run-up to Christmas, chooses certain prophecies, Old Testament prophecies, that early Christians saw as referring to our divine Lord and his birth. And so we have all of the, uh, the antiphons that come. Arrow cross, of course, is the reverse of that. It's the beginning of them right. uh, reversed to spell this little acronym. But in the days between the 17th and the 23rd, 
we have uh, beautiful examples, and they're probably the most well-known of all the antiphons sung in the year. The melody doesn't change, but it's adapted to the text for each day. I think we did a series. For we you we on, did. We might have to uh, dust yeah, that one we, off and, and and put it back in the extended rotation. Extended conversation. Here. And if yes. I can just chime in on arrow cross to finish that translation from the Latin to English of arrow cross is I will be here tomorrow. So right. it's it's the the prophecy of our our divine Lord coming at Christmas. And if you're right. saying, well, wait a minute, how is that the reverse? Because we always sing Emmanuel first. Well, yes, and O come, O come, Emmanuel. The right. hymn we do sing Emmanuel first, but in the divine office, we start with Sapensia, wisdom. Right. And we go wisdom, Lord, root of Jesse, key of David, Oriens, sunrise? Yes. For Oriens, Rex Gentium, king? King of the nations. King of the nations, and then Emmanuel. And God then with Emmanuel, us. God is with us. All right, wonderful. Well, Nicholas, Stan, I, I can't thank you enough for being with us and sticking around to give a little more in-depth discussion for the podcast today. We wish you and everyone at the Oratory of Saints Gregory and Augustine all the best. Please pray for us as and for our listeners as you sing the divine office and give honor and glory to God. Thank you. Thank you. Act of Consecration to St. Joseph. O dearest St. Joseph, I consecrate myself to your honor and give myself to you, that you may always be my father, my protector, and my guide in the way of salvation. Obtain for me a greater purity of heart and fervent love of the interior life. After your example, may I do all my actions for the greater glory of God, in union with the divine heart of Jesus and the immaculate heart of Mary. O blessed St. Joseph, pray for me that I may share in the peace and joy of your holy death. Amen. Our catechiz question today comes from the Covenant Network Math Department. You could maybe say this is road math to heaven. Uh, In talking about the rosary this morning and why you should pray it every day, let's uh, talk about the numbers on this. Now, we know that if you pray one set of mysteries a day, you are going to pray a total of 68 prayers. And how do we arrive at that number? Well, you pray one Apostles' Creed, you pray one Our Father, and three Hail Marys, and a Glory Be at the beginning of the Rosary. That's six. At the end of the Rosary, you'll pray the Hail Holy Queen and the Rosary Concluding Prayer. That's another two, and that makes eight. And then if you pray, you know, five Our Fathers, five Decades, five Glory Bees, and uh, the... uh, Fatima prayer at the end of each set of mysteries, you know, that's 13 times five, you know, that's 60. Oh, no, I just did my math here and I got it wrong, but that's 60 plus prayers. So that in mind, if you pray just one set of mysteries a day, you are going to pray a minimum of 250 prayers. I've rounded this because I just realized I messed up one thing in my counting. But if you pray two sets of mysteries a day, how many prayers will you pray? Well, it's a wonderful number. You are going to pray over 900 prayers a day just by praying two sets of the mystery or two sets of mysteries of the rosary today. But how many prayers a day would you pray if you prayed three rosaries, three sets of mysteries throughout the day? Well, you, my friend, are going to pray over 1,320 prayers if you pray in a week. You know, if, if you do this in a week, uh, this is really what I'm getting at. Is how many prayers will you pray in a week, not in a day? And I apologize for, for fumbling this here. But if you pray four sets of mysteries of the rosary a day, how many prayers are you going to pray in a week? You are going to pray over 1,750 prayers. 
1,750 prayers by praying four sets of mysteries a day. So not so much a question, I suppose, as a math lesson for us, but it really adds up. When you pray just one rosary, one set of mysteries a day for an entire week, you're going to be praying over 250 prayers that you wouldn't have prayed that week. But you up up your game to four sets of mysteries a day. We're in the thousands of prayers now. So that's what we have for you on our catechism this morning. I do want to make a very quick note for you. Um, we, I, I said at the beginning of the show that we were going to have Father Wade on with part of that interview from last week. I was looking at my program notes for tomorrow. So we are going to take a break. When we come back, Father Jeff Kirby is going to be joining us by phone with the St. Luke Challenger listening to Roadmap to Heaven. Stay tuned. Prayer for vocations. God, our Father who wills that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of your truth, we beg you to send laborers into your harvest and grant them grace to speak your word with all boldness so that your word may spread and be glorified and all nations may know you, the only God, and him whom you have sent, Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Our Lady Queen of the Americas, and Mary, Mother of the Franciscan Missionaries of the Eternal Word, pray for us. It's one of my favorite weeks of the year. It's Thanksgiving week, and we're going to take a break from getting ready for pies and turkeys and all the great things we're grateful for, not just the food, but the other gifts our Lord has given us in life, to take some time to talk with Father Jeffrey Kirby, which, by the way, I'm very grateful for this opportunity. Father Kirby, it's good to have you with us here on a Tuesday morning on Roadmap to Heaven. Thank you, Adam. It's good to be back on the show. Now, I understand that uh, this week, instead of me having a question for you, you have a challenge for us because as we we're time out from Thanksgiving for a minute, we're also getting ready for the first Sunday of Advent, and it's a, a wonderful season in the life of the church. So I, I guess the question is, what's the challenge for us? Yeah, so yeah, thank you, Adam, for, for the opportunity. I, I want to just uh, pitch to, to God's people the, the, the challenge. I, I call it the, 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 the St. Luke Challenge. Uh, we know that the Gospel of Luke, it's 24 chapters, and we know that if we start with chapter 1 on December 1st, so there's a few days into Advent, if we start on December 1st with chapter 1 and we read a chapter a day, it will take us up to Christmas Eve on December 24th. And St. Luke's Gospel is rich for that because, of course, so much of our Christmas story, so much of our Lord's early life, we only have because of St. Luke. So Matthew gives us some. Luke gives us the largest portion, and so it's a gospel that fits with the season. And Adam, I'm always trying to look for ways in which to encourage God's people to just read the Scriptures. St. Paul tells us the Scriptures were written for instruction. They are reliable. The letter to Hebrews tell us that the Word of God is a two-edged sword. It cuts uh, to the marrow, and it cuts between soul and spirit. Uh, there's so much help and guidance that we can receive, such divine wisdom from the Scriptures. And, and so I just want to say to everybody, hey— you know, as we're doing all the other stuff that, you know, is a part of this holiday season, okay, let's not forget that it is Advent, and let's not forget to dive into the Sacred Scriptures. So I say St. Luke Challenge. So uh, December 1st, so we can, you know, eat our uh, turkey and, 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 you know, begin the Advent season and, and kind of get our bearings. And then December 1st, you know, start with Chapter 1 of Luke, of Luke's Gospel. So that, that, that's my challenge, my encouragement. I love it. I love a good challenge, and I love the the providence that there's 24 days between the first Sunday of Advent this year, 24 chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Well, actually, you know, a little bit more than 24 days here, but 
you know, I'm not good at math, Father, especially this early in the morning. <laughs> and sometimes I need those extra days because I might fall asleep reading a chapter, which is why I try to do my reading early in the morning. One of the things our listeners know, Father, is every year I get on this soapbox that I really wish Joy to the World was an Advent hymn and not a Christmas carol, because I think of that one line in particular, let every heart prepare him room. And I I want to ask that question about this, because it's not just the knowledge of our Lord, and I'm grateful for the Gospels for that, but it's really about creating space in our hearts, not just to ponder him, but taking that physical time out of our day to say, God, this time is yours. The time that I'm going to read this chapter today is yours. And that really helps us in our Christian life, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I'll tell you, if, if we want to look at this supernaturally, we can see how the devil, the evil one, uh, you know, is such a strategist because his whole stealing of the Advent season what uh, was— a masterpiece in terms of distracting God's people, because, you know, if we're worried about everything else, what I call the secular Christmas, so we're worried about, you know, the, the Christmas cards and the parties and the gifts and the wrapping and all these things, you know, that can be a part of the holiday season, okay, but they become so preeminent and, and, and so overwhelming that Advent as that time to prepare our hearts, Advent as the time to dive back into the prophecies of old and to allow ourselves spiritually to have that anticipation for the coming of the Messiah. All that is gone. It gets stripped. It gets overwhelmed. And and, and the devil rejoices. He, he, he sticks his tail in that, and, and, and that's what he does. He's over there dancing, thinking that he has victory because the work of Advent has not been done. I, I think of the believer who gets to the manger on Christmas Day and realizes I did everything else. My house looks great with decorations. I made all the Christmas parties. All my loved ones were so happy with with the gifts I got them. But they stand before that manger and they say, I didn't prepare any room in my heart. I, I'm not ready for this. I, I can't believe it's already Christmas. I, I you know, and, and I would encourage people, uh, you know, you know, do what you have to do in these other areas, but don't let the devil steal your advent. As you're saying, take that time to prepare room in your heart for the Lord Jesus, because we don't want to get to Christmas and our actions have said to him, there's no room in this inn. There's no room in this heart. I didn't prepare for you. You have to go somewhere else. We don't want to say that. We want our hearts open. We want our hearts to be magnificent and beautiful, well-decorated and ready to give the real gifts to the King of Kings when he arrives. I love it. You know, one of the things I think we're all going to struggle with in the coming weeks is generosity with time. I mean, my calendar is pretty much filling up fast, and I have not only Christmas things to get ready for and Advent things, but I have birthdays this month, and we have things happening here in the office, and it just gets busy, busy, busy. So to really take that time for our Lord. I, you know, Father, I wonder if there's ever a, a special grace that when we take that time for God, especially on the days when we really are so busy that we're going to have to choose something to set aside. You know, it's easy to take time for God on the days that nothing's going on, but is there a special grace when we set aside that time on the busiest of busy days? Absolutely. I think when we are the, when we have so many things going on, we're, in, we're stretched in so many different directions, and yet we show by our priorities that Jesus Christ is Lord, that we make that time you know, to, to maybe read the readings of the day or to offer our prayers for the day or, 
you know, to look at some of the scriptures for for the season of Advent, these these prophecies of old, God richly blesses us. And sometimes we we ha- we get everything backwards in a fallen world because we have a lot going on. So we think, oh, that means I can't pray, I can't do my spiritual things. Whereas spiritual wisdom tells us the opposite. If we have more things to do, it means we have to pray more because God is entrusting more to us, right? So, so if a parent is parents are blessed with another child, they have to pray more, not less, because a new baby's on the way. Because they have to pray more because there's more duties, more responsibilities. God is giving more care, more of His kingdom to them, right? And for us during Advent, if we have these other things going on, and we have to be attentive to our duties, we love our neighbors, we love our friends, we love our family. This is a good part. Like these aren't bad things. But as we have on the take on these other duties or, or our vocations have us take on these other um, responsibilities and opportunities, then that means we have to pray more because that means we have more that God is giving to us. So if, if we can get first things first, I think suddenly things begin to flow. And, and Adam, honestly, there's more harmony and peace. Like whenever I don't pray and my, my, my prayer life is weakened, I get grouchy, I get upset, I get resentful. All those bad spirits come because the soul is weak so in this holy season especially if we if we just retrieve advent and we let first things come first we will find not only will we will we be able to do all that's asked of us but we will be able to do it better <laughs> i love with it the spirit of christ i love it all right so i did do some math here it takes me a while i got to work in the, in the margins and i know i'm not the only one that's grabbed a bible during this conversation and thumbed through the chapters they're not that long so this is very doable if you start on december 1st it's 24 days it's easy to remember today's the first i'm on chapter one tomorrow's the second i'm on chapter two if you start this sunday with the first sunday of advent here on November 27th, it's uh, you get four bonus days, so that if you do fall behind, you have four catch-up days to get your reading in. A chapter a day from the Gospel of St. Luke. It's the St. Luke Challenge. Father Kirby's challenged us. I, I want to get on board with this, and uh, Father, I want to thank you for this challenge today. My pleasure. I, I just pray that uh, all the faithful it, it, take the Luke Challenge or, or just wherever the Spirit might lead them, that they really allow the Scriptures to be a part of their Advent season. Yeah. All right. Well, two final questions here for you, Father. One of them you know is coming, is, and that's if you could close us out with a prayer, but also it's the, the survey question of the week. What's your favorite pie? <laughs> Normally it's apple pie, but during this time of year, it's definitely pumpkin pie with a whole lot of extra whipped cream. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, now, now we can pray. <laughs> <laughs> Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the good things that you bestow upon us. We thank you. We praise you. We adore your majesty. We thank you especially for the gift of your written word that you desire to teach us, that you want to grant us your wisdom, that we are not orphans. We are your children. You seek to guide us, to be with us. We thank you, Father. We praise you. And we ask all good things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Father Kirby, thanks for being with us. It's been a a great conversation as we get ready for the St. Luke Challenge. Until next time, I uh, wish you the best, and we're going to take a break here on Roadmap to Heaven. Stay tuned. A Prayer to Redeem Lost Time by St. Teresa of Avila. O my God, source of all mercy, I acknowledge your sovereign power. While recalling the wasted years that are past, I believe that you, Lord, can in an instant turn this loss to gain. Miserable as I am, yet I firmly believe that you can do all things. Please restore to me the time lost, giving me your grace, both now and in the future, that I may appear before you in wedding garments. Amen. 
Patty, as I was thinking about yesterday's dose of encouragement, I could only think one thing. This is going to be one of those weeks that really resonates with me and with our listeners. We're talking about gratitude, and I'm already grateful for what you're about to tell us, and you haven't even told it to us yet. Well, yesterday we talked about gratitude as the remedy for complaining or disappointments that happen in life. Today I want to talk about gratitude as the remedy for impatience. Think about that. Usually when we're impatient, it's because we want something and we want it now. And the remedy for greed of wanting more and more and more and more is also gratitude because gratitude is where you are thankful for all the things that you already have. It breeds contentment with what you already have. It's a totally different perspective. So when you find yourself impatient or when you find yourself greedy, maybe what you need to do is just stop and say, what do I already have? And the answer is abundance. All of us, we all have abundance. So start naming your abundance. At dinner every night, Everyone can go around the table and thank God for the little blessings of your day. I think it's really, really important for children to hear parents thank God out loud for everything, for everything. Thank you for the heat in our house on this cold night. Thank you, God, for a bed to sleep in and a roof over our heads. Thank you, God, for my job, even on a frustrating or exhausting day that provides for our family. Thank you for this meal that we get to share together. Start naming your abundance. Maybe do it at bedtime. Maybe do it at mealtime. But that will foster a whole perspective of gratitude, especially when you find yourself being impatient. Stop and say, what do I already have? And again, it's abundance. I was right. I'm grateful for what you said today. And I had no doubt about it, Patty. No doubt about it. So I'm looking forward to tomorrow now on the Daily Dose of Encouragement. Well, if today's show proves anything, it's uh, we all wonder why I do try to do math this early in the morning. I do have some good news for you, some clarifications. I set up a spreadsheet during one of the breaks because spreadsheets can do math, and I do know how to set up a spreadsheet. So let's go back to today's catechist question. Why pray the rosary every day? Well, if you pray the rosary every day with just one set of mysteries, here are the numbers. You're going to pray 74 prayers a day that you wouldn't have prayed if you didn't pray the rosary. And then throughout the week, if you pray the rosary, one set of mysteries every day for a week in seven days, that's 518 prayers that you were not going to pray that now you have. If you pray two sets of mysteries a day, you're going to pray 973 prayers throughout the week, 139 per day. If you pray three sets of mysteries, you're going to pray 204 prayers daily and then extend that to 1,428 prayers throughout the week. And if you pray all four sets of mysteries each and every day, you're going to pray 269 prayers daily, extended to 1,883 prayers per week. Uh, I Now, in doing that math, I do want to share with you that when I pray more than set of, one set of mysteries per day, I do not pray the intro prayers twice, and I do not pray the concluding prayers twice if I know I'm going to be praying more than one set of mysteries throughout the day. What do I mean by that? Well, if I'm going to pray, today is Tuesday. If I'm going to pray the Sorrowful Mysteries as my first rosary today, I'll pray the Apostles' Creed, the Our Father, the Three Hail Marys, a Glory Be and a Fatima prayer at the beginning. Then I'll pray my five decades of the Sorrowful Mysteries, which is 13 prayers per decade, so on and so forth. And then if I know that later I'm going to pray a second rosary, I will not pray the Hail Holy Queen 
or the concluding prayer, because I'm going to save that for after my final rosary of the day. Now, sometimes it doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes I end up praying bonus rosaries, so these numbers, they only go up from there. If, if I think, I, well, I'm only going to be praying one rosary today, I'll pray that Hail Holy Queen and that concluding prayer just to be safe. And if I end up praying another rosary, well, great. It's just more prayers. I mean, honestly, is that going to hurt us? Is, is more prayer going to hurt us? No, it's good for us. All of the numbers aside, that's a lot of math this morning. All of the numbers aside, here's the one thing you need to know. 105 years ago, in Fatima, in Portugal, the Blessed Mother appeared to three children. And in those apparitions, she exhorted them to pray the rosary each and every day. She showed them what happens to souls who go to hell. In each of her apparitions, we know that she was not smiling. You know, the children never report seeing the Blessed Mother smile. They do report seeing not a grim look, but what I would maybe describe as a stern look on her face. It was urgent. It wasn't, hey, everybody, everybody's doing great. You know, just keep up, keep on keeping on, as, as sometimes we like to say. No, it was the importance of praying the rosary each and every day. And if that's not enough, then the largest miracle, the largest public crowd to ever witness a miracle, the miracle of the sun. These are all reasons. You say, well, Adam, that's not enough. I encourage you to go and look up the just the apparitions of the last hundred years. We've talked about them before on the show. Our Lady of Akita, Our Lady of All Nations, Our Lady, uh, when she appeared in Rwanda, the same message, pray the rosary. Pray the rosary. It will change your heart. It will change your life. And most of all, your Blessed Mother is asking you to pray it each and every day. Let's conclude our time together in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Lady, Queen of all saints, pray for us. And St. Joseph, terror of demons, pray for us. Got a little out of order there, too, but that's all right. We're still getting all the prayers in. I want to thank you for being with us on Roadmap to Heaven this morning. It's been a treat to be with you. Thanks for putting up with my ineptitude with math. And uh, thank you for spreadsheets who make it easier. Until next time, you've been listening to Covenant Network's Roadmap to Heaven. I'm Adam Wright. And as I just told you, the Blessed Mother wants you to pray your rosary today. <laughs>